The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or to view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. So, uh, we'll finish up the uh, computational illumination uh, that I couldn't finish last time. And then uh, we'll talk about uh, light fields. Uh, we'll talk about assignment number two, which is on optics. Uh, we have two options. Uh, some other announcements. Uh, make sure you're checking the wiki and the reading material. There's a lot of material we will not be covering in detail. You know, for example, how a camera works and depth of field and apertures and so on. Um, the plenty of uh, information online. This particular tutor on, on YouTube seems to be pretty reasonable. The guy looks kind of scary and has a very shady lighting, but other than that, he seems to be in a good job of explaining, you know, depth um, of field. And this particular one is about um, is about uh, you know different SLR concepts. I don't know why he has a pink curtain behind him. But he, he does a very good job, you know, understanding all these things. This URL is uh, up there. Good. So the lots of ideas for final projects. I, I would like you to start thinking about them. Uh, just uh, come and join us on this site, as close to the this corner as possible. <laughs> um, there are lots of ideas. Just come and talk to me, uh, and we have uh, several mentors listed for the class. Uh, Professor Mukaigawa is there. Uh, he's uh, one of the world's leaders in, in computer vision, uh, so you can talk to him about your ideas. Uh, or Ankit Mohan, who presented last week, uh, is also a mentor. So there are a lot of people who you can talk to. We also have Matthias here, and you can brainstorm some ideas with him about sensors uh, and so on. And uh, just wanted to give you an update. So these are some of the class projects from from last year. So as I said, Shiran Photography was the best project award. The bi-directional screen uh, got the student research prize at, at SIGGRAPH. And we just heard last week that the Looking Around the Corner project won the MARP prize, which is the, the top prize in computer vision. So it's extremely prestigious. And uh, Kirmani, who was working on this project, received the number two prize. They give out two prizes, uh, best paper award and second best paper award, and he won that. So hopefully your project will also also uh, be uh, in that uh, in that uh, with, with that level of uh, fame and fortune. All right. So uh, homeworks. There are three things you need to do, and it, I don't think it was very clear to everybody in the first assignment. You need to create your own website. Uh, where all the information is kept. You need to submit the link on the Stellar and then you need to submit the input and output photos on the Flickr group for the for the class. Right now I think I have only about six people on the Flickr group. That means not everybody was uh, uh, was uh, able to post their pictures uh, on the Flickr group. And the reason why we hate on Flickr group is that we can comment on each other's results. Um, and, and so on. Of course, the rest of the world can as well, uh, but we can. And hopefully as we go along uh, in your assignments, you'll be able to create pictures that are not just visually interesting because the guy spent a lot of time with a lot of patience with very expensive gear, but because they're really beautiful computational techniques 
and you'll be creating magical photos. Last time we were talking about, you know, people are, there was a fascination with the high dynamic range. Right now there's fascination with the tilt shift, but hopefully the next fascination that you'll see on Flickr will originate from some technique that you invent uh, in this class. Maybe a, a light filled picture could be the next one, which is the assignment for us this week. So there are uh, two assignments, uh, two choices. Sorry for, uh, for the second assignment. Uh, the first one is uh, extending Andrew Adams, who's a PhD student at uh, Stanford. You'll, you'll hear his name all the time. He's, he's just done wonderful, wonderful work. Um, and uh, you'll be extending his so-called virtual optical bench. So the way it works is uh, you go to his uh, virtual optical bench, which is built in Flash. But you can use anything you want. You can use Java, C++, MATLAB, anything you like. Uh, and it allows you to do operations on light uh, as if you're on a vertical bench, uh, sorry, optical bench. So you know you can put things here. Uh, so you can put lenses. Um, and then you can put uh, mirrors. And you can put uh, um, blockers. Um, you can put, uh, I believe, uh, diff diffusers, um, and so on. So you can put any of these elements, uh, and of course rotate them and so on, uh, to create uh, a really, really useful uh, set of tools to understand how light propagates. So you know, if you're, uh, I don't know, if you're building a, a, a HCI system, uh, rather than having to draw everything in Illustrator or on a piece of paper. Uh, you can just fire up this application and you can design your whole thing and also understand how light uh, behaves, you know, insert the focal length and so on and you can very nicely build this, uh, your optical setup. So what Andrew has done, uh, he's graciously offered his source code uh, with us, is uh, he's provided some basic functionality of inserting lenses and mirrors and blockers and diffusers uh, but it's not complete. So for example, if I change the focal length, so let's see our uh, optics 101 here. So as you can see, this is our uh, classic optics. If I uh, put a lens here, then the, all the rays come into sharp focus. Uh, as I move the lens to the left, the focus points also starts moving. Uh, at some point, the rays start diverging. And at what point will they become parallel? If I keep moving the lens to the left. At the focal length, right? So if I, if I move the lens all the way to the focal length uh, of the same lens, then all the rays coming from that will become parallel. And even if I add a second one here, then all those rays will become parallel. And as I bring it even closer, uh, they'll start averaging. And you know, you can you can you can use this to demonstrate you know how to build uh, a telescope or a microscope uh, by adding a second lens and so on. Uh, so as you can see, you can you know you can play with multiple lenses and and things and so on. So it'll be a lot of fun. So what you have to do for the assignment is uh, add more elements, such as prisms and gratings and so on. And right now, he's just creating, uh, just shooting rays, but he's not forming an image. If you go to optical bench, 
you'll be able to actually form an image. So you have to write uh, uh, a very simple routine to integrate the light from multiple rays and actually form an image, which is relatively straightforward because um, if I put a um, if I put a uh, sensor here, all I have to do is go to this pixel and sum up all the rays that reach that point, and that's the intensity of that pixel. And as I move this around, uh, the same pixel has no rays arriving there, so the intensity is zero, uh, and so on. And if I add some other um, uh, point here, then um, this should look, this should uh, add up to become a blue pixel. This should add up to become a purple pixel, and so on. So it's a relatively simple operation, and maybe you have a window here that shows the formed image. Uh, and also, it doesn't have an ability to actually enter the specific numbers. So if I want to say the focal length should be 30 millimeters, it doesn't have a way to do that. It's all based on GUI. So that few minor additions you have to make, and it's kind of an open, open-ended assignment. The more you add, the better. I'll give you some some suggestions on how you can uh, improve it. So that's uh, option one, um, and this requires programming, uh, sufficient programming. Option two is uh, synthetic aperture photography. So we saw this uh, in the very first class where you have an array of cameras uh, and you can see behind an occluder. So if I, um, with an array of cameras, if you're uh, seeing through this, these trees, um, by doing some software operations on a set of images, you can actually see around, uh, see through uh, the foliage and, and leaves and so on. Okay. So this is what you'll be doing for your assignment. Now, of course, you don't have this million-dollar camera array, so we have to come up with a shortcut. And the way we will do that is um, we will just translate a camera and uh, take multiple pictures. So instead of having a camera array, you can just take your SLR or a webcam, whatever camera you have, even your cell phone camera, uh, just translate it and take maybe about 30 pictures or 40 pictures, and then we're going to do the same operations. And we'll learn about how exactly uh, it's done, how you can see through uh, some uploaders. So um, you know, you'll be creating this see-through effects by eliminating the foreground pixels. So it's a lot of fun to do this assignment. Uh, and there's a third option uh, which uh, you may want to take, which is saying, so th for this one, you actually have to make sure that you're moving the camera in a reasonable way. If you have experience with building Legos, you can just build a Lego robot that moves the camera and takes pictures. Um, or you know, just manually, you can just mark it on a ruler and just take camera here, take picture, take put a camera here, and so on. But all of this involves a little bit of physical work. Uh, if you want to just you know, stay in your office and look at the screen all night long and do the programming and never have to go uh, and play with real things, you can do the whole thing just in software by again using this virtual optical patch. So you can synthesize the images uh, and maybe in OpenGL or using the virtual optical bench with different viewpoints and add them together and so on. Uh, not as much fun, but maybe you can create even more interesting effects. So it's just an option. Um, I would suggest going with the, with the real thing as opposed to doing it all in, in software. All right, so uh, let's go back and finish uh, our the few topics we left uh, 
we couldn't we couldn't cover because of the what is coming up the reason why I wasn't here for the last class uh, was I was at an event called Catch It Off in uh, in New York. Uh, it's a really great event uh, if you get an opportunity. It's 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 kind of the gadgets equivalent of uh, of TED, um, and people are blowing up things, you know, crazy displays, crazy robots, crazy cameras. Um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, if you go to YouTube and just type gadget off, you will see um, many of the. Well, well, that's coming up. Let me show you something else. Um, so if you remember, we were talking about Google Earth Live. And imagine uh, if you can fire up Google Earth, and you can go to any part of the world and see it live. Because very soon we'll have cameras on every uh, street light. We'll have cameras on every bus, every taxi. And even people carrying their own cell phone cameras will subscribe to some service. And they'll be broadcasting, uh, you know, their video. We don't know for what, but they will. Um, and uh, when that happens, when you can really fire up and go to any part of the world and see it live, um, it will be a very different notion than uh, uh, what we think about as uh, mounted cameras. Nowadays, we think of them as mostly for surveillance. Uh, but over time, uh, they will become, maybe we will be able to use them for, for beneficial kind of commercial uh, solutions. Uh, so the question is when is it going to happen? And uh, some of the things are are, are already happening. So uh, this particular project, I'm sure it scares a lot of people that you'll be able to go to any part of the world and and see it live. But you can also imagine it will have uh, it will be used for for some good reasons. You know, uh, definitely for for commercial reasons. Uh, you know, you can have an index of, uh, you know, uh, what people's health in this area. If you just if you just put, you know, two points and see how long it takes for people to walk across these two markers, that tells you how you know how healthy people are in this town, or at least how much in rush they are all the time. Um, if you are uh, a real estate agent, you can you know figure out uh, what's the property value of this area based on what kind of food traffic you get at a particular restaurant. If you want to go to a restaurant, you can find out, you know, is there a long wait um, there, uh, and so on. So this was the project at Georgia Tech, uh, Ifan SS Group. And, you know, it's an it's a interesting concept. So uh, remember we had a poll about when do we think uh, a digital camera as a standalone device uh, will disappear. And uh, most people were between five to ten years. There were a couple of people who said even two years. Um, I think the, the mean was somewhere between five to ten. So here's another question. When do you think we'll have Google Earth Live? When you can fire up and go to any part of the world and see it live. You won't be able to do it in the middle of Iowa. What percentage of the world are you saying? Uh, let's say at least one city. That's it. That you can fire up and go to any one particular city, let's say Manhattan, well, and see it like any one particular city, any one city. Yeah, it could be Tokyo, it could be New York, okay. it could be you know oh, Sioux City. Probably London, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but remember, it's not surveillance. 
Right. It's not surveillance. It's 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 a commercial service. The same way people are thinking about creating free Wi-Fi networks. Can't can't you do that? Um, they have suicide TV show, but I feel like did they have something with webcams publicly available webcams like all along the border? Mm-hmm. Did you watch? Did you like? Um, watch the Minuteman, Minuteman effort or something. <laughs> people running across. Yeah, I think that's what that's what it was called. So right? I, mean, I guess that is real. Right. But again, think away from surveillance. All the efforts we have seen so far are surveillance based. And uh, the video that you just saw is not about surveillance. It's about you know watching sports games, getting a sense of what the traffic is on the street. So you know making all, right now all these uh, street level maps or and, and aerial maps are, are completely lifeless. They're just static snapshots. And you want to add some dynamic element to it. May not be may not be realistic. Maybe you have, there are technologies that shows a flow of people, but you cannot recognize who's who. Right? So there will be all these other kind of overlays uh, on, on top of that. Uh, so just like when Google Street Maps came around, you could see the people, and now the, people are, the faces of uh, people are blurred, or the license plate number. But in the beginning, everything will be free for all. Uh, pretty scary, but... <laughs> certainly, certainly. I mean, it's the same issue that Google Street Maps. Yeah. I think Google Earth when they launched like on satellite. Uh huh. <laughs> but satellite that's in a geosynchronous satellite or, or you know somewhere that's like yeah, a blimp that's floating around. Media, uh, they are on satellite and they can take their own picture, their own equipment. It's possible or not? It's too far away. Really? I mean, satellite is too far away. Okay. You have small satellite. But you also want to exploit uh, infrastructure set up by somebody else. So you might send your own satellite to look at, you know, you know, your your ex-girlfriend. But <laughs> but you know, you want to also exploit existing networks. And maybe you won't have to because there'll be enough cameras. Uh, I mean, today Google might come and say, "I'll pay you five dollars a month. Just aim the camera outside your office or outside your dorm room or outside your shop." And we'll pay you five dollars. Just give us the stream. And for me, it doesn't it doesn't matter to me. I can just aim it outside. But by using that network, they can provide the service. There's a bus tracking uh, proposal project that did that for like the Buddhist cameras outside their house. See, yeah, and they're on route. Yeah, they use that to like figure out where buses were in the city because there wasn't enough money in the city to pay for tracking buses. See, I can also imagine like imagine getting a camera on every cab or something. Exactly. It's like you're having a fleet of Google Street Exactly. That are all and and they'll be live because they can you know they can figure out the condition of the roads. Uh, they can tell you about traffic. They can tell you about potholes. They can tell you about rain or no rain. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there was a very nice project in in Tokyo where they placed um, uh, just uh, just on-off detectors, not on-off detectors, but detectors on the wipers of taxis. And from that, they figured out. They got a map of the whole city and how much it is raining in which part of the city, and that was, of course, much more accurate than the weather reports that they were getting because they just measure it in some bucket, you know, how much it's raining. And here, just they're not measuring rain; they're just measuring how fast the wipers are moving all over the city. So that's kind of an indirect way of capturing visual data. Um, so one city, how many years it will take? Yeah, we'll do a quick poll. 
you have to you have to put your put your uh, vote on the line. Let's say two. Two years. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Either be a European citizen. <laughs> <laughs> very very two years last time as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So you 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 are a two year guy. Uh, all right. Ten years. Yeah. Well, just one city. Just one city. Yeah. So which city? Las Vegas. It has to be a city where something interesting is happening. So I'm guessing. I'm guessing it's not in the U.S. First of all, because there are too many privacy issues. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be. It would be like a Hollywood, but maybe in another country. Yeah. I can imagine a city like Hong Kong or something. Yeah. Singapore would do it. Yeah. Singapore. 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 <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Any city in the world. So ten years. Uh, we should go the other way. Five years. Sorry. <laughs> ten years. And never. Uh, JB. Only satellites, right? Yeah. Not. <laughs> okay, don't cross your path with JB because he'll still he'll put his satellite, you know, on on your trail. Right? But the imaging is not that easy. How are you going to image from 3,600 kilometers? Oh, yeah. yeah, just zoom, zoom, zoom. Yeah. In software. In software. It will also need a lot of data storage. I mean, mm -hmm. you can store the whole world's history. Right. Based on this, Google Earth, like, if you have the records and archives of this, and you can actually track back all the crime scenes, it's a tight possible. Now, you need a, a super huge data storage for that. Because, like, storing complete words. Live history is difficult. So it depends what's important and what you really want to store. Certainly. I mean, you know, storage, I mean, EMC will be happy if you come up with ideas where, you know, you have to store more and more. Uh, I remember when, uh, you know, back in the days when, uh, back in the days when uh, Mosaic was around uh, in the 92, I remember if I open, open the Mosaic homepage, they listed every website in the world. Do you remember this, Matthias? <laughs> right? And uh, over time, of course, there's no way you can make a list because everything is so dynamic. You still have uh, places like archive.org, I believe, where you can time shift and look at how a web page looked over the last 10 years or so. I don't know how far back they go. But you can look at, you can go to my homepage, for example, and you can see how it looked every every few days over the last 10 years. I'm, I'm sure, yeah. But still, the fact that they are keeping a snapshot of the whole World Wide Web uh, over time, and over time will make you know a record of the whole world visually, not just of the websites. So it's going to happen. I went to a conference in 2000, and somebody came with a book, mm -hmm. and it was internet. It was all the URL on the book. Yeah, everything printed. Yeah, everything. that's what it would be like, you know, like, like we have a telephone, we could yeah, 
So, you know, the, the complexity of data and bandwidth and computing and, and memory just grows exponentially. I remember when I was in grad school, the hot topic was how to assign IP addresses from mobile devices, like mobile laptops. That was like a huge research problem. And now, you know, we are flipping through it, you know, all the time, completely seamlessly. So, uh, we don't even think about that as a problem. So, it's a similar, similar, uh, similar situation here in the visual domain. Remember, this is... This is, the, this is going to be the, the decade for visual computing. Um, but, you know, we're not just talking about kind of social implications or, or business opportunities in this class. We really want to think about what kind of cameras make sense. You know, if you're going to put a camera on every street light or on every taxi cab, what kind of camera should be developed so that it's compatible? If you put a camera on a taxi cab and you keep taking photos, it's all going to be blurred. It's going to be totally useless. Uh, if you put a camera on a, on a street light, uh, it will be wider field of view, but you will not be able to see anything specific. You know, there are all, this, all these issues that come up. Um, maybe you should exploit you know, different, different wavelengths. You should use different optics, different processing. Maybe they should talk to each other and do some coordination and, and so on. So you know, these are some really interesting challenges. So could be one of your final projects. I think they're finally up here. So last time we were talking about computational illumination, uh, and we saw several examples like uh, creating cartoons directly for XCI, or doing uh, uh, flash matting by taking pictures in the foreground and background. And we'll cover just a few more projects before we switch over to optics and, uh, and light fields. So here was a, a recent SIGGRAPH paper where if you wanted to create uh, an image that's more comprehensible, uh, like on a leaf, where if you take any one of the photos, uh, it may not show the structure very well. <coughs> you can just put an object, uh, keep the camera fixed, uh, put it in a video mode, and just move the flashlight around, just randomly. And you collect a set of photos, maybe three, four, five, ten, uh, and then you do uh, some computation on that, to create an image where you can enhance the shape, uh, or you can, so here you're enhancing the shape, here enhancing the detail, and so on. So, you know, there, there are lots of techniques that they showed. Uh, for example, there are five input images. Yes? What do you mean by the shape and surface detail there? What's the difference? So, in case of the leaf, you want to show the relief. You know, how are the folds? The, the terrain, that's what I mean by shape. Not just the outline. But for example here, uh, it's the, the shadows, I mean it's, it's illuminated as if the light is at a very grazing angle. So you, the relief or the terrain is, uh, is, is more clearly visible here. Right? So you can see the shadows here and so on. So we know that this particular <coughs> structure is much higher than this, this particular area. So, so the height field of that is enhanced. On the other hand, this one shows all the texture in great detail, but it looks like a very flat leaf. So you can have knobs in your software which says, show me more of the detail or show me more of the shape. And you can get off uh, between that. Um, and they came up with uh, multiple methods. This particular method, you know, again, put this uh, a 3D object, move it around, and create uh, 
this particular result. This is my older method, the one I showed for doing the day and night images. So they compared with that. Uh, and their claim is that if they use my method, the shadows are preserved, which is true. Uh, and in their methods, they can create you know, more beautiful combinations by using multi-scale decomposition of bilateral filter. And we'll talk about that uh, at some other point. So this is very unique. As a, as a photographer, you would never think of setting up the lights in such a way so that in post-capture, you can decide whether you want to highlight the shape or the detail. Okay, so that was so far uh, light position we were changing, but there are lots of other parameters we can change uh, for light. Uh, so let's look at this project called Dual Photography, one of my favorite projects, and we also saw it as a teaser where the experiment they want to do is uh, uh, rediscard from this camera, although it's, uh, it's facing away uh, from the camera. Okay. So what they're going to do is place a projector uh, in the line of sight um, and some kind of a reflective surface. Uh, if you shine light from this projector uh, on, a, on just one spot, okay, it's going to bounce around on the book and eventually arrive at the camera. Okay? Uh, and by shining one light at a time, uh, this is what the camera will see directly. So again, this card is facing away uh, from the camera. Uh, you're going to shine uh, different pixels on this card. Um, and you do this a million times because you have a million pixels uh, in the projector. So after taking a million photos, uh, this is what you'll be able to see from the camera. So this is a dual photo. What is the point for uh, one photo looks like this. Oh, okay. So that's it. Yeah. Any one of the, all the photos look almost like this, except when you shine the when you shine the the red part of the card here, uh, this book will look a little bit reddish because it will be cast. And if you shine the yellowish part, when the sh the the projector shines the yellowish part on the card, there'll be a yellowish glow. That's it. And from that, you can figure out uh, how this works. Uh, it still requires line of sight. Sorry? It still requires line of sight of the object, right? It, the projector has to be line of sight. So you had to put something in line of sight. Yeah, but it's cute. I agree. It may or may not be practical, but it's, it's very interesting. <laughs> uh, there, was a, uh, there was a very uh, uh, a project that received a lot of press uh, about five years ago where some guy came up with a technique to figure out what you're reading on your monitor by just looking at the window. So imagine it's a nighttime scene. Uh, and you are uh, in the room uh, working on your monitor and if you stand outside, somebody stands outside the window, they can see the glow from your monitor uh, in the room. Now the question is, can they figure out what's on the monitor by just looking at the glow in the room? Yes. How? Because they can synchronize with the scan of the monitor. Exactly. So it won't work for LCD. But if it's a CRT monitor, only one pixel is being illuminated at a time. So if you have a photo detector that's aimed at the window uh, and it's running at the speed of the CRT and you synchronize it, you'll be able to actually read what's on the CRT monitor. So for TVs, at least old TVs, it's running only at about 30 hertz or 60 hertz. So it's literally easy to figure out what's 
if, if the image is, is, uh, is sufficiently high contrast, you can figure out what's, what was on the TV or the monitor. This is how they, uh, they track the, the, the TV license in the UK. Mm -hmm. This is So that's 
the simplest version of dual photography that you can record light by the so-called flying spot principle. You eliminate the spot and you see how much light was reflected from it in, in aggregate. Okay, so that's that's the basic reciprocity. Now, uh, okay, so let's look at the math for this very briefly. Okay, and it's very straightforward. So, so just follow me once they were done. So let's say I turn on the first pixel of the projector and record the, the intensity of light. I record the intensity for first pixel. Uh, then I turn on the second pixel, I record the intensity. Third pixel and so on. Okay. Now, if you replace the photo sensor with a bulb and the projector with a camera, the claim is that you will receive the same exact intensities. Right? So with the light, I'm going to just floodlit the scene directly. And the claim is that the first pixel will receive the same light that the photo detector would have received uh, over here. Okay? And so on. Is that clear? But isn't, for example, the first pixel getting reflections from all over the rabbit? Mm -hmm. yeah. That's the point. That it will it will reflect all over the place. Uh, but if you look at the point directly, because of the duality of light, you can replace your eye and the light source, and you will see the same exact intensity in that particular direction. In case of the 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 analogy I gave you of being able to see what's on your monitor by looking at a window, you just, the, the light from your monitor lights up the whole room and some of the light leaks through the window, right? But it doesn't really matter. There's some proportion of light that leaks through the window. And when the next pixel turns on, the same proportion of that light leaks through the window. Yeah, but I, mean, I get that because every pixel is being turned on and off in mm -hmm. order. Right. But here, all the pixels are being illuminated at the same time. No, in the in the in the experiment, only one pixel is being turned on at a time. I, oh, but then the light bulb is doing. It's also flickering the same way the projector is. No, it's not. It's not. That's a good point. So here you understand that only one of them is turned yes. on at a time, and we are recording it on the photo detector. Now, when you have the light source, uh, the point you are making is that light will reflect. Light will come in from here. It will bounce from here, and it will reach here. But light could also bounce from somewhere else and go in the same direction. It will not because when you shoot a ray from this projector, it will hit only one point. Okay. And that particular point is lit by this light in only one direction. So there is still this one as to one mapping between the two. But you have light that bounces in a, like it bounces, hits some spot, hits a mirror, lands right. on that spot again. That's a very good question. So when you have interreflections, we'll see that in the second half how we deal with it. So this is a very simple demonstration where we have only one-to-one -one correspondence between the direction of the light and the direction of the pixel. So you, you could do a camera just with the projector and the and, and, and the light sensor? Uh, yes, basically. Because if you have prior knowledge of the scene that you're imaging, you can dramatically reduce the number of measurements. measurements that you need. Like for that card example, you didn't actually need to do a million how would you do it? 
um, figure out where the symbol is first. <laughs> find the corner by. So you're saying that out you're saying the the yeah. white part of the card. I don't need to eliminate that at all because I know it's already white. Is that what? Sorry? The the white part of the card, playing card. You're saying I don't need to shine those parts because there's no information there. Is that what you're saying? And then, and then you don't have to shoot the whole card all the time. You can just shoot the little tiny corner where the K or the Q or the seven is. And uh -huh. That's all you need. But then you'll capture only the K. You will not capture the rest of the card. Well, that's all you need. Yeah, but, but to get the card, <laughs> okay, all right, okay. Now, now you're thinking about actually, actually playing bridge or something. Relevant yeah, information right. is. <laughs> yeah, could be. But you don't know where it is, right? Well, if you if you use the projector to first scan one horizontal and one vertical, you get enough information to figure out where the. But there's some information there. Certainly, you can you can come up with some optimizations if you really want to. You know. If you really want to read opponent's cards, if that's all you want to do, I'm sure you can come up with interesting things. But I mean for other applications where you know what you're looking at, but you're looking for some very specific exactly. thing. So you could do some binary search. Right. So for example, when JB asked, you know, can I just use a projector and a photo sensor to look at something? If all I want to do is locate some retroreflective dot, then yes, you might be able to just shine a whole vertical line, sweep across and then another line and sweep across and that will quickly give you the x and y coordinate of that spot. Right? So yeah, you could come up with quick uh, quick uh, simplifications. Alright? But this is standard technique that we have seen many times. We are, we would look, we are going to go beyond that now. But is this part clear now? That we are going to measure the intensities and they will be the same in both directions. Okay, now we are going to go uh, you know, a little bit further. Alright, so this is what they get. Uh, this is the kind of images they get by using this mechanism. Alright, not, not great quality, but but reasonable. There's a there's a bunny there. Alright, and a flying spot uh, camera. That's exactly how it works. You have a spot that's moving around, and that's how scanning electron microscope microscopes work. You know, it's not a high quality camera, but a high quality light source that's very focused. So you just you have a sample, but you, just sam uh, you eliminate the sample at only one location, and then you have a detector that integrates light over the whole sample. Uh, and, and so you can, you, know, you can do a very good job of that. Now, uh, instead of a photo sensor, we're going to make it a little bit more complicated and replace that with a camera. Okay? So what you're going to see throughout this uh, class today is how we can start thinking in higher dimensions. And realizing that the appearance of the world is not just flat 2D, but actually it's much higher dimensional. In this particular case, how many dimensions do we have? When we had a photo detector, the photo detector is zero dimensional, and the projector is two dimensional. So the measurement was two dimensional, and we got an image out. How many dimensions do we have here? Four. Four. We have two for the projector, uh, X, Y, of the frame buffer of the projector, and two for the camera, the UV. Sorry? It's time dimension as well, but right now everything is static and things are not changing over time. You could say there is wavelength and so on, but we are ignoring that as well. We are just assuming it's just crazy. Okay? So now we are going to think in four dimensions. All right? So now what we are going to do, do is exactly the same thing. We are going to turn on, uh, we are going to assign some coordinate system, PQ for projector and M for, uh, for, for camera. Um, and we, we will realize that 
just the same way we swapped the eye and the light source, we'll be able to swap the camera and the projector. Now, coming back to primal, same trick. We're going to turn on one particular pixel and, uh, of the projector and read one particular pixel of the camera. Except, because it's a camera, I can read all the ML pixels simultaneously in one snapshot. I don't have to read them one at a time. But the projector, I can only turn on one PQ pixel at a time. All right? So that's a 4D mapping. I have four functions, uh, four parameters, PQ, MM. And for every PQMN, I have one value. It's a function of four variables. Right? And then to capture that, it's a little bit straightforward. Right? Uh, I'm going to turn on one pixel of the time of the projector. And I'm going to record one image, m times n. Okay? And this is a very standard method in linear algebra, where instead of representing it as a 2D, you represent it as a single vector. So let's say, let's take some numbers here so it becomes easier to remember. Uh, let's imagine the projector is 1,000 pixels by 1,000 pixels. Okay? And the camera is, again, uh, so let's say it's 2,000 pixels by 2,000 pixels. Okay? So this particular vector is now going to be 1,000 times 1,000 times 1. So you'll have 1 million entries corresponding to each pixel of the projector. The image that you get is now 2,000 by 2,000. So it's 4 million, 4 million entries in this particular vector. Okay? Good so far? Now we're going to come up with a relationship that maps these values to these values. Because remember, when I turned on one pixel here, it made contributions to all these 4 million pixels out here. And we're going to try and represent that mathematically. And it's relatively straightforward. Uh, we'll just go slow one at a time. Okay? And that transformation we're going to specify as this matrix T, which is now, what's the dimensionality here? M times N is 4 million. And P times Q is 1 million. Okay. This is a huge matrix. 4 million by 1 million. Okay? So, this is, you know, in, in already in terabytes. Sorry, gigabytes. 10 to the 12. So, 4 terabytes. Right? All right. Now, um, this is how we're going to build this matrix. We're going to fill up the values in this matrix. Remember, every time I turn on a projector pixel, I get 4 million values. Next time I turn on projector pixel, I get 4 million values in the camera. Okay. So 1 million times 4 million is uh, what we're going to get. So very simple. I'm going to turn on the first pixel of the projector and see what image I get. Okay. And that value will go here. All right. So the 4 million values will simply go here. And that is the image that will be captured. So again, turn on the first pixel of the projector, see what image I get, which will be this 4 million values, and those values are simply the first column of this transform projector. Okay. Then I turn on the next pixel of the projector, record the image in the camera, and that becomes the second column of this transformation matrix and so on. 
Okay. Now, uh, it's very easy to see what's going on here. If I turn on both pixels, the first pixel as well as the second pixel, what image should I get? Sum of both the columns. The sum of the first two images I got. So again, if I turn on the first pixel, I took a photo. I turn on the second pixel, I got the second photo. If I turn on both pixels at the same time, I'll simply get the sum of those two photos. And that's what is being represented here mathematically. So if I put a one here and a one here, then the matrix multiplication will say, these two values multiplied by one and one here, the sum of that goes in the first value. And uh, again, the same two values in second row, not same two values, different two values in this row multiplied by again the one and one here, go to the second value here, and so on. Okay. So we're going to set up this huge uh, linear system by just probing the scene one pixel at a time. And so filling up this T matrix is really straightforward. I turn on the third pixel, take a photo, and that photo becomes my third color. Okay. Very simple. And you keep doing that, and you can build your T matrix. Again, a lot of data, uh, but that's, that's research. All right. <laughs> now, if you had a, uh, if you had a, uh, let's say you had this wall, or simple screen, and I put a projector and a camera. Uh, what will happen? If I turn on one pixel of the projector, how many pixels of the camera will get a non-zero value? Only one. If I turn on the next pixel of the projector, some other pixel of the camera will, will get the value, but only one pixel in the whole image will be actually non-zero. Right? So if you have a scene that's literally simple, maybe just flat uh, or, or a convex object, in T, every column will have only one value that's non-zero, or maybe a couple of values if the camera has high resolution. So the matrix T will actually look very sparse. Most of the values are zero, only some values almost along the diagonal will have non-zero values. On the other hand, if you have a scene with lots of interreflections, you know, if you're looking at a corner of a room or you know there's a glass bottle and all this complexity, when I turn on one pixel of the projector, many pixels in the camera actually get the intensity. The first because of the bottle, the next because of the screen, the third because of interreflections in the screen, and so multiple pixels in the camera will be left. Um, and so the matrix T will be very dense. Because remember, every column there, more than one entry will be on zero. So that gives us some, if I just look at the matrix T, if some, somebody just shows me the matrix T, the, you know, the, the gigabytes or terabytes of data in just a visual representation, I can tell you from what kind of scene it came up. Right? So just to make sure uh, it's clear. So it's a projector, it's a camera, it's a transform matrix. If I turn on the first pixel, uh, the photo that appears because of the first pixel, I'm just going to put it here. If the scene was very simple, where I have a projector and a camera, and I turn on one pixel, and it maps to only one camera, then only one of the values will be on zero. The rest of the values will be also. And if I turn on the next pixel of the projector, only one of the camera pixels will be left, and so on. So maybe I'll have a value here, a value here, a value here, a value here, maybe a value here, and so on. Every column will have only one value that's non-zero. Everything else you should see. 
that's a sparse matrix. On the other hand, if I have seen that has a lot of complexities, you know, there's a glass bottle here, there's an reflection here, uh, and so on. When I turn on one pixel of the projector, it reflects on here, it reflects on the back of the bottle, some other pixel, it hits this uh, uh, wall and goes to some other pixel, this light reflects off, reflects other pixel. So maybe you know 10 or 15 different pixels of the camera will be lit. So in this case, when I write uh, uh, the matrix, for the very first entry, in the first column, multiple values will be non zero. And when I turn on the second pixel, similarly a lot of values will be non zero. And so on. So this matrix will actually look pretty dense. A lot of values are non zero. So by just looking at this, visually looking at the structure of this matrix, I know how complicated it seems. Okay. This is very useful. And this will keep coming up in, uh, as we go as we go along. Is this clear? <coughs> All right. So this is what we call our primal space, which is turn on one pixel of the projector, take a photo. Now we want to create the dual space, right? That was our dual photography problem. How will the picture look like if I put a camera where the projector is? And we're going to solve that by doing very simple operations on this uh, on this uh, matrix. Okay. So again, we spent all this time taking a million photos but turning on one projector pixel at a time. Now is the time to see the money. Right. This is the problem I want to solve. Okay. If I put a camera where the projector is, how does it look? So I need to come up with a I need to come up with a transformation T, uh, a modified transformation that will map my camera pixels to projector pixels. Right now we're mapping projector pixels to camera pixels. Okay. That's the question we have to answer. And let's call it uh, T double prime. <coughs> and its dimensionality is now, the upper one was 1 million by, sorry, 4 million by 1 million. The bottom one is 1 million by 4 million. Okay, that already gives you a cue of, of what you could do. So if I turn on pixel J of the projector, pixel I of the projector gets certain value. And it corresponds to this column and this row. Now, uh, let's call it uh, uh, pixel bag. And now when I put the camera at the projector, I want to say which pixel of the camera, when I look at a pixel, I of a camera, which projector pixels contribute to that? Okay, so I took this million pictures. Only when some of the projector pixels were turned on, I got a non-zero value at this uh, on this camera pixel. And that's also a very similar structure. Okay, so the hint for that is the matrix T double prime is simply a transpose of the matrix T. Okay, you just flip it along its, uh, along its, uh, uh, just flip the horizontal and vertical uh, coordinates of the matrix, and that gives you the T double prime. As simple as that. And from that, uh, we can compute an image that appears as if the camera was placed at the project.
So here are some uh, examples. So here's a picture taken by when the projector was floodlit. This is how the camera looks at it. We're going to probe it multiple times and recompute an image as if the camera was placed at the projector. Okay. In this case, it's still all diffuse, only one as to one mapping. There's no interreflection, there's no class, and so on. So it's really easy to compute. Here are more challenging examples. So, uh, where's the projector in this case? It's a little bit to the left. You can see all the shadows going back, uh, going uh, very deep. And now we're going to create, a, create from this a photo as if the camera was placed at the projector. Okay. Will we see shadows when we create that picture? What will we see? Okay, you won't see the shadows because now your, your camera is placed where the projector was. But you'll see something else. Sorry? Exactly. So why do we have shadow on the horse? So now, although the horse was lit where the projector was, we swapped the projector with the camera. And from the camera's viewpoint, the horse was actually uploaded. So when I place the when I swap the two, now I don't see the light on the horse. So it as appears as if it's in shadow. So it looks real or are they simulated? This is real. This is yeah, they've spent days and days capturing days and days capturing this data. So this is not a shadow, it's an occlusion. It's an yeah, you can think of it as an occlusion. What is occlusion? Uh, how do you define how do you define occlusion? We can't see parts of the horse because the colors. How would you define it more precisely? Light can't reach. No light. Light cannot reach. So if I shoot a ray, right, we're going to talk about rays a lot in the second half. When you shoot a ray, the ray is occluded and it, it stops the path of the ray. Right? And that's occlusion. So when we think about light, it's very obvious because the ray starts from the light source and it's occluded and there's shadow on the other side. But even for even for cameras, there's occlusion. Now if I'm looking at this monitor, I cannot see what's on the other side. So this is like the inverse ray, because I'm shooting the rays from my eye. In fact, the Greeks used to think that, um, you know, the way we look at the world is we shoot the rays from the eye. And they were right. <laughs> because the duality of light, you can just shoot the rays from your eye, and it's the same same math after that. So is it like in, in the computer, you know, in the rendering graphics, you have ray casting? Ray casting. Mm -hmm. that? And the question here is that, uh, was there totally dark before the illuminator? Do they have any other like No, this, they just have certain. They have control everything. So we cannot use this in a room like this uh, with external lighting. It has to be very controlled. No, no, no. I mean, well, whatever additional term you have, it will remain. Okay. Or you can take two photos one with the light source, one without the light source, and subtract it away. So you can do all those things. Okay. But you're right that I cannot do this in broad daylight because the light. Uh, it's like taking a flash, flash photo in broad daylight. The flash doesn't make any difference because it cannot override the sunlight uh, or doesn't make significant contribution above the sunlight. It's the same thing here. So computationally, how, how easy is it, is it to, to get that uh, spectral 
I mean, if you have enough memory. <laughs> so it's not that easy to take the. I mean, if you have a small matrix, taking a transpose, you know, is very simple, just n square, right? Uh, just take the value and just change it x, change its x and y coordinate. Make x y and make y x. Very simple. Um, even a million by a thousand by thousand image, thousand by thousand matrix, no big deal. But, but eventually you run out of memory. If you load the whole matrix and try to invert it, uh, you know it's going to be a challenge. Just, just think about you know taking a sheet of paper, and all I want to do is do its transpose. Uh, if the room is you know limited size, I can take bigger and bigger sheets and do the transpose. You know at some point if you give me a really large sheet, I won't be able to do the transpose. Although the task is very easy. Well, I mean, you don't even need to do that. Like, you just need to do the addition, right? Sorry? All you need to, to, make, to make the image is you add up each of those columns. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, can't you just... So, you can do it mathematically, but you may not be able to load even the load the whole thing in memory. You don't need to. You just access... Exactly. Exactly. So, you just do this... You won't be able to do this in kind of a real-time manner. But if you, if you do some disk access, then you'll be able to do it. And in the paper, they describe all this all these challenges and if there's time I'll just show you very briefly what approximations they came up with that allows them to, you know, load this quickly. Very briefly, does it exist case it doesn't matter whether the projector is on where the cameras. Sure. You can just put them arbitrarily. Yeah. Of course they can't be too far away, but as long as one can see one can see the impact of the other. Uh, now are you saying that they should be optically uh, coaxial? Yeah. Certainly. I mean my thesis by the way, my PhD thesis was projector as a dual of a camera. Can you build one? I built many versions, but actually uh, in Hiroshi's group there is a concept called IO bulb. And there is a concept of the bulb, and uh, it was more asking of the physical device. But, but I remember John and others actually built kind of projectors and cameras that are coaxial and for interaction and so on. I mean, other people have built it as well, but they show a lot of interaction on top of that. So the concept of putting them together for some specific task is well known. But what this group showed was that mathematically, you can you can you know create this magical pictures. Do you get a resolution difference? Of course. So that's a great point. So you might start with a I don't know a 10 megapixel camera, but if the projector is only a megapixel, then when you your your dual image is only going to be a megapixel, and there are going to be you know a lot of aliasing issues and so on. So that's a very good point. Uh, and it also it will also impact if the projector's color um, properties are going to impact how you capture the image as well. It's not purely dependent on the, the camera quality now, camera sensor quality now. It's also dependent on the projector's illumination quality. Beyond the challenge, how did you this technique? Did they have scenario of the use of the of that? Uh, I, I didn't hear the last part. Beyond the technical challenge, right. uh, did the author of this paper have a scenario, say, oh, it could be useful for this? Or yes, I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you their motivation. Okay. But I, as you can imagine, this can be used in many other ways. Uh, it's not always practical because you're taking a million images, right? <laughs> but at the same time, I'll show you the reason where it does give a lot of benefit. Uh, 
Other questions? All right. Don't always have to take a million, but they <clears throat> don't they show how to do the uh, subdivision? Exactly. Subdivision. Yeah, I'll show that very briefly. It's kind of a second order effect, and I don't want to go too much into detail. But and now you can do really complicated scenes, such as you know some global illumination. So the caustics and, and so on. So, okay. Um, and then we can start doing some special effects. So remember, the picture on the left was taken by the camera. The picture on the right was computed as if the camera was at the projector. <coughs> on top of that, now that we have swapped the projector and the camera, I can convert the projector into a slide projector mathematically and see how the image looks. So if you go back to this matrix, I can just put I can put all ones here, that will be flat field of the projector and see how the image looks. And similarly I can put all ones here to see what happens when I switch the camera and the projector. But I don't have to put all ones, I can put 1010101010. That means as if I put a slide projector where every pixel was on and off, every alternate pixel was on and off. So you can create slide projectors to uh, create those effects. So you know you can you can create interesting effects like this. But you can't do that backwards on the original. Uh, you can do both ways, of course. I mean, in the primal domain, it's very easy, right? Because I can turn on one pixel of the projector, take a photo. Next pixel, I don't turn on. The oh, third right. pixel, I turn on, so you, yeah. and I can just add, take addition of those half a million photos, and I'll automatically get this effect. So in the primal domain, it's very easy to do. I think in the parallel domain it's even easier. You can just literally project that slide. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But the point is that if you had collected this terabyte of data from that, you can you, you don't have to think in advance which slide you want to project. You can change that slide in software. You understand? Yeah. yeah I, it's, the same, it's the same effect as we saw earlier, where the woman was in a dome. Yeah. The Milan versus LA, and post capture I can decide how she should look um, for a light. Alright, so let me let me skip over the rest of the slides. It will be available for you, and go to the uh, next part of. Uh, okay, the motivation for that was this, and again thinking in even higher dimensions. So we just realized that the lighting and appearance, I mean lighting is two dimensional, the photo is two dimensional, so it's already four dimensional. But we're going to go now in much higher dimensions. Okay, so. Instead of putting just one projector, imagine if it started putting multiple projectors. Okay. So instead of turning on one pixel of one projector, uh, of the given projector, now I have four million pixels, um, a million pixels in each of the projectors. So this adds, you know, additional two degrees of freedom because if I have a projector, I can place it anywhere in 2D. So you can just think about the hemisphere. You know, any azimuth, any azimuth and any elevation, I can put this projector. And every projector has a buffer with x, y. So the illumination itself now becomes four dimension. Two degrees of freedom for the position and two degrees of freedom for the pixel coordinate. And the camera is still two dimensional. So how many dimensions do we have now? Sorry? No? No? We have two for position of the projector, two for uh, coordinate of the pixel of the projector, and two for the camera. It's six, right? So 
we're, we're increasing our dimensionality here and the problem is getting more and more crazy. Right? So imagine if you want to do this, how would you do it? It's like 4 million steps. You'll have like 4 million photos. But there is a shortcut based on what you just saw. How can you reduce the total number of pictures? So this is thinking in primary domain. Duality. Duality. How will you exploit that? If you switch the, the camera Exactly. And the benefit... So now if you switch the camera... I think it's on the next slide. So that's 4D, that's 2D, so total is 60. Now, and other people have done things like this where they have a camera, and they have a projector and they move the object and capture the 60. So people have built this race all the way back in 2003 in Axigraph. Okay? Now, again, it will take 4 million pictures if you have to do that. Then on one time, one time, one time, and so on. Right? But now if you switch them, what's the benefit? Because, because all the cameras can work in parallel. All the projectors could not work in parallel. Only one projector could be on at a time. But all the cameras can take the picture at the same time. Right? So now all I, all I have to do is turn on one pixel of the projector and all the cameras take the snapshot at the same time. So instead of taking 4 million pictures, I can just take 1 million. And I can put as many cameras as I want. And by switching the role of the projector and the camera, I have reduced the total number of samples I have to capture. Total number of uh, time slots. Total number of samples remain the same. Kevin is not happy. Well, I have a question, but I think it's going to be answered on the next slide if I remember correctly. <laughs> All right, so we'll do that. Okay, so it's still 60. So this is how they did it. Uh, instead of creating uh, you know, 16 cameras, they just took one camera, or 16, 16 megapixel, and they just aimed it at these mirrors. So that becomes kind of a virtual camera. And then one projector. And from this, they're going to create an illusion that they have 16 projectors and one camera. So results, hopefully. Car experiment, which so do they need a camera for the car experiment? No. What do they need? Uh, light or a color sensitive photo detector. They just need one photo detector. They could have done it, yeah. but for some, you know, they're just, just showing that for some So uh, there are some there are some other other experiments that show you know how they use that um, that uh, multi planar mirror thing. Any questions on, on that, Mother? Hmm. Yeah. Maybe I just forgot this, but so if you have a 40 uh, projector setup, they can actually <coughs> project where the camera might not be able to see, mm -hmm. and then maybe that would reflect onto the ground, and then the camera could see it. Mm -hmm. But if you flip them, then the projector can't illuminate like occluded mm -hmm. stuff. That's the same example in the in the in the playing card. Yeah, it is. So it still works. 
So did you understand his question? No. Yeah, yeah. When we are writing this whole thing down, we have this implicit assumption that when the projector emits light, the camera can see it. If it doesn't see it, we cannot ignore it. But that's not that's not the case. Even if the camera cannot see it, so the example we have there is you have a car and let's see how this matter works. I'll just go back to that scenario. You have, you have a car here, and you have a projector, it shines light, and then you have a camera, and none of the cameras can directly see this pixel because on the other side of the playing card, but it's going to see the reflection that comes from all these areas here. Right? So you're still going to see that yellow or red glow on the book from the scan. So remember, you don't have to see. The camera doesn't have to see that pixel directly, that patch directly, to be able to compute how to look when you switch the camera and watch it. But just as in the example where the horse was uprooted by the emblem, mm -hmm. there can be cases where none of the rays actually reach the camera. That's possible, yeah. That's possible. Yeah. And is it possible to send the ray from the projector in an incident something, something that will reflect the ray? So it will work? Yeah, that's fine. I mean, if you put a mirror here, a mirror is okay, but not a diffusing surface. It doesn't no, repeat your question. If, because there is a, uh, I understand it in one way, but the other way is a bit complex for me. Mm -hmm. So if you shine light uh, not directly on the car, right. but on the book, mm -hmm. will it still work? Yeah, then if, okay, let's take that example. So I have this, I have the car, yeah. I have a projector, I just shine the book. Yeah. And let's say that that thing is still not visible from the camera. Exactly. What will I yeah. I will read the book, I will not read the card. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I because there is a yeah. that goes on the card as well. Yeah, let's say the bookish has a bluish patch here. Okay. The whole thing will look blue. And I'll say, oh yeah, it must have been the blue spot. In theory, you should. <laughs> In theory, you might be able to still read the card. Yeah, yeah. the blue light bounced by the bullet hit the car with a very diffused light source lighting up the card. Different spots on the book, effectively, and reflecting back. It's the third reflection. Yeah. All right, somewhere in the matrix. Point. Uh, I was going to ask if uh, uh, there's any clever way you can compute the answer instead of having to take all a million, like uh -huh. take some pattern. Exactly. So if you, if you know a priori that certain parts of the scene, oh, even without any knowledge of the scene, like yeah, you can you can do some probing. I can shine light at one part and see do I get light from here? I don't. So maybe they are independent of each other. I can shine both of them at the same time. So you can definitely do those probings and quickly figure out yeah. uh, how to. In the paper, they even have the algorithm for it. It's only like this long. Yeah. By the way, this will be our next assignment, assignment number three, your photography, as one of the options. So you can either take a million photos or you can use that short algorithm to reduce the number of samples. But it still takes a long time. <laughs> you'll, have to run it run, you'll have to leave it running overnight and, uh, and, uh, and come back in the morning. All right. So to me, a lot of projects in computational photography are just sheer magic. You know, being able to see uh, a playing card that you can't even see from a camera. The next one, which uh, I was involved in, is also a lot of fun. Uh, or visual chatter. So the concept that you know when the two patches are talking to each other, we call it just visual chatter. Mm -hmm. If they can't see each other, there is no chatter. They can see each other, there is chatter. Okay. 
And uh, this concept is actually a very unique. By the way, this when I meet uh, photographers or professional photographers who are kind of technically inclined, and they say, "What do you mean by computational photography?" and you know, I give them all the buzzwords and, and big definitions, and they don't get it. I, I try to explain to them dual photography, and they immediately get it. Usually, they say, "Wow, okay, I can't think of with all the techniques I have in my bag." You know, all the polarization filters and all the flashlights and all the umbrellas and all the fancy lenses. I can't think of a way to create those kind of photos. Uh, so, and this, the next one you'll see is, is similar. So, giving these concrete examples, uh, you know, at least for me, has been helpful to communicate to photographers what's different here with computational cameras and Okay, so now we're going to look at a little bit more about how light bounces around in the world, okay? And we're going to think about direct illumination and global illumination, which is a, unfortunately a wrong uh, terminology because what we're really talking about is direct reflection and global reflection. But because of some reasons I won't get into, people call it direct and global illumination. Okay? So direct reflection is straightforward. Uh, the global reflection is when light bounces around and reaches um, the location. So the path A is just direct, path B is reflect, reflect, reflect. Okay. So uh, if I shine this part right here, that's direct. If I look at this, uh, this uh, shadowed region, that's uh, indirect. Okay. The third one that's interesting is subsurface. Light actually enters the surface it bounces around and then it comes out at some point. And marble or skin uh, is a good example of that. Okay, this subsurface scattering. There are some other ones such as uh, participating mediums. So if you have fog or water, uh, then you know light is going to kind of scatter around and then come and, and you know, you can look at that. And then finally, you have transmissive or translucent. Uh, you know, light is going to transmit something and then come back to you. Okay. So in this particular case, light actually is coming through this uh, curtain uh, to the camera. And that's because of diffusion and, and other elements scattering. Now, what we're going to do is distinguish between direct and everything else. Okay. And I showed this example in the, in the beginning of the, of the class where you have somebody behind a shower curtain. You can find out what the direct bounce is, and unfortunately it's too dark, but you can probably see the face here, right? And that's the interact, or because of uh, transmission. This will be one of your one of the options in the third sense. How does it work? Okay, very simple idea, very very simple idea. Um, you turn on all the pixels of the projector, take a photo. That's easy to capture the direct box. Okay. Now, uh, let's introduce a little bit of terminology. Keep it really simple. Okay. Uh, before I go there, let me give you some intuition, and then we'll go here. So imagine if I... Uh, maybe I'll come on this side. So I'll be more, more inclined to go this way. <laughs> so imagine... Uh, if I have a corner wall, 
and I take a laser pointer and shine a spot here. What's going to happen because of that is um, light will again bounce here, right? And that light will again bounce here. And when I look at the corner of this room, I will see a very bright red spot, but also see a red cast everywhere else. And so the red spot is because of direct, and everything else is because of indirect or global transport. Now, let's say I go from this patch I to the next patch J. Okay, so I, I change the direction of the laser just a little bit. So now I'm going to shine here. Clearly, the bright spot, I'll initially notice that the bright spot has moved from I to J. What will happen over here? Will I see a change? Very little, if any. Very little change. Right? Same here and here. There will be hardly any change. What does it tell you? It lets you separate direct and global. We are going to separate direct and global, but Look, this very simple experiment tells you that when the light is bouncing directly, it's a very localized effect. But when the light is bouncing or bouncing globally, it's a very low frequency effect. And it doesn't really matter whether shine here or shine there. Okay. So now let's say I wanted to figure out from these two photos, photo when the light is shining at I and light is shining at J, which one is direct and which one is global. How would you do it? You go for what doesn't change. That's it. Right? The part that did not change is the bounced around part, the global part. And the part that changed is the direct part. That's it. From those two photos, I can tell you which is the direct component and global component. So let's look at it a little bit more precisely. So photo one and photo two. The photo one is direct plus some global. Okay. And the second one is some direct plus some global. Okay. Now we know that when I change the light a little bit, the global did not change at all. Right. So I can just I'll call this I1 and I2. If I subtract I1 minus I2. What will I get? This two I two. I'll just get D1 minus D2. Right? And simply from that I can figure out a photo that's the distinction between D1 and D2. So I have two equations and right now I have three unknowns. D1, D2, and uh, this two are same. Okay. Now I can take multiple photos. I can take a third photo. I can shine the laser slightly next position. I'll have D3 plus global and so on. So I'll have n equations and n, n plus 1 and minus. For every equation, I introduce a new direct and the global remains the same. Of course, once I start shining somewhere else, if I go sufficiently far away from this, the global will change eventually. Not see the same, but it's a very simple observation. Okay, so going beyond that, let's do some really simple experiment. Instead of 
What we are interested in is not shining a laser at a time, but I'm going to put a bulb here. Right? I'm going to turn on the flashlight and I want to know when I take a photo which part is direct and which part is low. So I don't have this choice of doing one pixel or one direction at a time. How would you do that? That's SIGGRAPH paper. You can't answer it because you're at Columbia. Yeah. <laughs> okay? And I'll give you a hint. Instead of taking thousands of pictures, we're going to take exactly two pictures. Okay? We're going to replace this bulb with a projector. Okay? I'm going to project one pattern, take a picture. I'm going to project a second pattern, take a picture. I1 and I2. The globals will remain the same and the direct will also be related. And from those two pictures, I'll be able to figure out what's direct and what's global. Can you make the two directs inverse grids? Exactly. So, when somebody asks you a question that there is there two patterns, there has to be some symmetry. <laughs> so, I'm glad you're catching on that. So, the answer is very simple. Did everybody get it? Like more than, there is more than a solution, but they all have the same principle but they are inverse of each other. So the simplest one would be I'll show a checkerboard pattern and I'll show the inverse of the checkerboard pattern. So let's take that a little bit further and uh, if I shine now instead of one laser I'm going to shine multiple lasers right? because I'm going to turn on every alternate pixel of the projector. So I'm going to shine this and shine this and shine this and so on. So let's say I turned on all the even pixels of the projector and take a photo. Certain pixels will be bright, the next pixel, certain patches will be bright, the next patch will be dark, bright, dark, bright, dark. Okay. And that's my photo I1. Now, if I project the exact inverse of that, the pixel that was on is off and the one that is off is on, um, what will happen to the global? It remains the same based on the, the earlier experiment we saw. So, in the first picture, I have some global. In the second picture, I have some global. Okay. And in case of direct, I, I put the direct here, and here I had basically one minus direct. Because I just inverted it. Okay. And you can make the problem even simpler. Right? And these are what the equations are, so we'll go through it very quickly. You project the pattern. Look at the pixel. In this case, it's lit. It's receiving the direct component and half of the global component. Because remember, if I turn on all the pixels on the projector, I'll get certain intensity in the dark patch. If I turn on only half of them, then the global intensity will also go down by half. Right? So the alpha here is just half. So what I got in the first one is direct plus half. If I switch the checkerboard, I'm going to go again is D, right? Because it's just inverse of that. One minus D is again D because it's just half. And again half of G. That's it. So we have two equations and two unknowns: the direct component and global component. If I take a subtraction, 
I will get <laughs> what will I get? Yes. So I need to call it the unit. All the value related. So all I'm going to do is take these two pictures, find the max of the two, okay, and that's going to be my direct, and find the min of the two, that's going to be my blue. So if I look at this particular patch, when it was not lit, it received, so think about this patch, okay, particular patch. So I of x, let's call this patch x. This received direct plus half global. But unfortunately, this particular one did not get a direct at all in the first picture. In the second picture, again, you know, d plus half g. In the second picture, I did get the direct. Okay. So the first equation is half g. Second equation is d plus half g. If I just subtract the two, I get the direct. And then if I do additional manipulation, or if I just take the minimum of these two, I will get the global. And if I just subtract the two, I will get the D. That's it. So from just two pictures, I can tell you what bounced straight from the wall and what bounced around. This is almost like magic because physicists build really expensive equipment, laser equipment, to solve this problem of what's the direct bounce and what's the global bounce. And now we have come up with a very simple technique where we just change the illumination, which we call computational illumination, to figure out what's direct and what's global. Yes? So by figuring this out, you eliminate the global illumination, and basically you turn a, a lead bulb into a, a very high collimation device, like a laser. So you remove all the ambiguities of the indirect and global right. to a very precise. So it's a way to use a lead bulb like a very high collimation. Um, column, I don't know what you mean by collimation. Yeah, like just a one spot, you mean? Yeah, they told you the spots. Uh -huh. It's very, very precise. high. Yes. Uh, but, but as you can see, even if you have a very narrow spot, it still has global scattering. Sure. So yeah. collimation alone does not give you. Sure, sure. So the, the right way to think about this is imagine uh, there's somebody who's sitting in this room, okay, and there's a wall. Okay. Um, now, think about two different pictures. Imagine this wall is white, okay, and a turn on a light source. Okay. What will happen is, and this is what the difference between professional photographers and consumer, right? If you go to a professional photographer, they'll put a nice white drop. I think most of you have that box in your office, right? And the reason the box is white is because you want to see the object nicely lit from multiple directions because of scattering. Okay, you will get one type of picture. Now imagine if this box around the object is completely black. So that light hits this thing, it goes to the reflector, but nothing comes back because it's completely black. This, the picture that you would get when the rest of the world is completely black would be the direct image. There's no scattering going on. As opposed to putting it in the white wall, well, you would get this. So it's a bit like being in an echoic chamber or something. You can think of it that way. So if you go to a, uh, yeah, yeah uh, an echoic chamber. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you feel really strange. I mean, this wall, I can hear my echoes, and that kind of helps me uh, uh, change my tone because I know whether I'm talking too loud or, and so on. Okay. But, you know, 
sometimes when you're at a performance, you go on the stage and you can't hear yourself. Right? That's, that's a similar feeling. So if you if you eliminate all the other bounces, that's the direct component. And uh, so as you can imagine, in photography, the global component is very critical. It's very very critical. When you're shooting a movie, and even if it's a nighttime scene, uh, the the director will always put some small light sources here and there. So you know something is still visible on the screen, and you can figure out what the characters are saying. You know, if a real nighttime scene doesn't look like that. But by creating this global illumination, they they just create the enough enough uh, enough brightness so that you can discern. So it's extremely powerful to figure out direct versus global. Now let's see how we can use it. Okay. So before we before we see that, let's look at some real world objects and how for them direct and global components really matter. Okay. So we have marble, we have um, this uh, very diffuse uh, candle wax, uh, water with some uh, glass with some milky water, and interreflections between the walls, and so on. Okay, And this one, if you do this trick, you'll see something really interesting. What will you see, let's say, um, at the corner here? By the way, do you know why a, 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 the corner of any room looks really, really bright. It's all interreflections. Okay. There's more light reflecting back and forth there than anywhere else. That's why it looks bright. Um, what about this uh, this wax here? Most of the light is actually scattering inside. So it's almost all global. Yeah. Right. Same with marble and so on. So we'll see how it looks. Or how movie. But this is how the world looks. This is all the light that's coming straight back. If you look at wax or milky water, none of the light actually comes straight back. It all bounces around before it comes back. Okay. On the other hand, over here, you can see that light is actually reflecting. And it, also in the corner, you can see that everything is because of interreflection. There's a bug here. In the corner, you see it's very bright. <coughs> it shouldn't be. Because the corner here should not be any bright than the rest of the wall. Because it's just a direct reflection. But there's a, bug, there's a, there's a limitation to this algorithm in terms of its resolution. Oh, that's why it doesn't yeah, capture. So you get miscategorized because your checkerboard size isn't small enough. Exactly. Your pixels are not small enough yeah. to capture that corner. Another question is, so in the previous example with the uh, shower curtain, mm -hmm. the direct component lets you see through the scattering curtain? No, the, the global component. Oh, the global component. Okay, never mind. So yes. It's it a good technique also to uh, take a picture of an aquarium. Because aquarium? Yes. Yeah, 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 certainly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, is there a good way to recombine these, like, to uh, adjust how much global you have and how direct you have it? Beautiful, right? So you can play these tricks in your Photoshop where you don't just change the brightness, but you're changing the global versus direct. So the wax will will start glowing, but you know the, the regular diffuse surfaces will not. You can play all those tricks. Also with skin. It turns out, uh, we'll see later, that if you lived in a world where direct and global could be separated, there'll be no racism. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you go back. Uh, how about the highlight on the glass? 
on the direct side. This one here? No, no. Uh, this one? Yeah. yeah. So you will see later that this technique doesn't work for highlights. Okay. And, and I wanted to think about why, why that, why, why that is the case. Right? So let's look at some fun examples. So this is a V groove in a wall, right? Which we already saw. It should look flat and only in the corner you'll see internal reflections. Uh, here's a failure case. Okay. If you have a shiny mirror, then if I shine a laser at the mirror, I'll get, so let me, let me try it properly. I have a mirror and I have a wall. If I shine the laser here, it reflects here. Right? On the other hand, if I had a wall, then if I shine the laser here, it reflects everywhere. So it only reflects in one spot. If I change the laser direction to slightly here, it goes in a different spot. And the global effect of here versus here is quite different. As opposed to here, if I shine this part versus this part, this will have the same reddish color, same reddish color. That's not true for spectral objects. So that's what the technique is. But, I mean, would you even call that global illumination? So global illumination is anything that has more than one bounce. Oh, okay. So by the definition of global reflection, anything that has, has more than one bounce of the photon is global. So. Yeah, it fails. I mean, depending on your application, you can say, hey, specular is not part of my world, and you can get rid of that. <laughs> so it has these issues. So now, now, now we have some interesting examples. I really like this part. So make a reflection. Uh, X. What should you see? Uh, because you know between those X, there's going to be a lot of light bouncing around. Yeah. So it'll all blow up. It's <laughs> in the bottom right. Um, you can also do a trick where you can do it in sunlight. You can just do the inverse effect. I can just take a stick and move it. And remember, if I take lots of images, the minimum of all the images is the global, and the maximum of all the images is direct plus global. That's it. Those two equations are done. It's very easy. So if I move a stick, I shoot a video, at any given pixel, I'm, I look at all the frames, and the minimum of that is the global component. Right. So you can do this outdoors. Ah, again, I don't have a video. Sorry. So in the shower curtain, our favorite example. Same effect. And here, light that bounces straight from the curtain is the direct component. Any light that actually bounced around and came back to the camera is the global component. So anything that's behind the curtain will actually play a bigger role in the globe. Now the problem is that even the, the, the texture on the curtain actually has some surface scattering. It has some thickness, light is bouncing around and then coming out. So that, that's kept here as well. Um, but you can capture it. Yes? What was the mesh diffuser that you were using? So yeah, that's a good point. So there are multiple ways you can do it, right? I can either use a projector or I can just take a, a mesh, I can just buy the Home Depot, buy a high frequency mesh, put a light source, and just move the mesh in front of it, and shoot a video. So to cast, to create this light projector that projects a checkerboard and its inverse, I don't have to use a projector. I can just use a light source and a mesh, or a stick, whatever it is. Uh, 
for you to, for those who are actually in the video, for the stick you need video, or do you need to, like, just watch the video and watch the video and then a whole bunch of, no, only just two pictures, which was our, our You are taking more pictures. Okay, okay. But the minimum number of pictures you need is two. Because you have two unknowns, direct and global. And then this is your uh, fish tank, where you will see very clearly in uh, murky water. That's direct. Actually, it turns out most of the light is bouncing around and coming at you. And the picture on the left, maybe I should lay the lights here. And this looks like some kind of a computer graphics rendering. Why is that? Because in the old days, they didn't have global. Exactly. Because <laughs> cheap computer graphics rendering is basically just direct bounce of light. It doesn't think about, you know, render man, Maya, doing all this bouncing of light around and so on. So, you know, when, when Pixar decided to make animation movies, uh, which movie did they make first? Toy Story. Why? It's all plastic. <laughs> it's very easy to render. <laughs> they cannot do ants, and they cannot do fur, and they cannot do rain, and they cannot do fog. It's just toys. Toys are the easiest thing to render because they have very simple surfaces. And they all look like this on the left. Uh, so we can... We can you know, so, so what explains the color shift? Because if you if you know how how uh, light reflects inside uh, some kind of a, a scattering medium, then it has a preference over certain certain wavelengths. If you're underwater, then red is suppressed and blue green is not. Right. So similar thing here. So blue, it always has a blue green tinge because what you're scattering suppresses one wavelength but not the other. Well, so so the, the scattering goes like omega to the fourth. Mm -hmm. so the blue should be scattered more. So yeah, you, you, in the in the global component, you see more bluish, okay. right? And the tinge, the bluish tinge on the red uh, red cup there is gone on the left. Oh, okay, okay, I see. Because this is just a direct bounce, we're ignoring the scattering. So imagine the projector pixel comes, it scatters through the water, and then hits the hits the the red cup. And I'm just trying to measure that. I don't want to worry about how everything else is contributing back to that red cup. In all the example you showed, uh, you either use a light bulb or a projector. Mm -hmm. uh, could you use the light of the sun? So the, the example of the stick was with the sun. Okay, but can you modulate it? Could you apply a... Yeah, you can, you can again take a grid or a mesh okay. and just move it and shoot the video. It's the same thing. But, but then just out of curiosity with this whole uh, scattering colors that I didn't get, what's the actual real color of the green cup? Is it it's that. It's, if, I, if I take it out and put it in, in free space. <laughs> no, it's that color. Green. green. Okay. So it's a Is it green? I don't know. Okay. And then, you know, you can play with, you know, adding more tinge and so on. As you were saying, like, you can have more global component or less global component and so on. Okay. Now, here are some really fun examples. You can even figure out what is real and what is fake. 
One fruit is real and one fruit is fake. Um, let's see. Let's start with the banana. Which one is real? Which one is fake? Top is real? Fake. How many think top is real? The bottom is real? Okay, everything bottom is real. What about apple? Left is real? Okay, left is, uh, sorry, right is real? Okay, so, so for bottom and right and the lemons, left is real? Right is real? Alright, remember your choices. <laughs> okay, pretty good, pretty good. So, uh, but how would a camera do it? Right? If I just take this picture and give it to a camera, like a computer vision algorithm, it's almost impossible to figure out which one is real, which one is fake. And the reason for that is when you make a plastic or, or a fake fruit, you only try to match its outer appearance. You know, you don't try to match its inner appearance. Right? So in case of the apple, you realize that light bounces around inside in a real apple and it becomes reddish. That's what gives the reddish color. But in a fake apple, no light bounces around. So you know which one is Apple and which one is Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> Over here, it's a little bit more complicated because although it's fake, it has, I know, it has, first of all, the, the, the direct bounce from a real banana is actually very different color. Um, and this is all because of the ripening that's happening inside. And when it comes to lemon, it's, it, this one is very complicated for me because in the real lemon, if you look at the direct component, the, this lemon is, is, is maybe it's a good quality fake because even the internal reflections inside that fake lemon, and I, I think I've seen those fake lemons, they are a little bit kind of soft and fuzzy, so light can bounce around inside, as opposed to apples, which are just hard. Um, the, the way to figure that out is if you look at the direct component of a real uh, real lemon, first of all, you realize that it's, 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 it's green, it's not blue, it's not yellow. Uh, and the real lemon actually has a texture that you never see directly. But when you see the real uh, direct bounce, you see that reflection. So, a lot of interesting things here. I wish if I had it in my cell phone camera so I can figure out so this is, by the way, a great trick to figure out if something is ripe or not. If it's more ripe, it light will bounce around more inside because you know its, it's permeability is different. So I can build a cell phone camera that can tell you if a fruit is ripe or not. <laughs> and it's also like in photospectrometry, you can see the plants is all done that, it's colors, it's combined. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you can do it with that as well. But you know, this, this is another another kind of tool you yeah. have. So Which can be implemented very easily. If you use 3D, if you use the, 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 the face of somebody, you should actually put everything inside because of this as well. There is internal reflection in the head as well. I'm sorry, repeat the question. If you, show, you show that it's always distinguishes maybe something alive and something that is not right. fake from the real. So whether there's a makeup or not. For example. Yes. So unfortunately, yeah, this trick will also tell you if somebody is wearing makeup or not. Okay. Let, let me just talk about uh, ethnicity. So as you know that, you know, hands of uh, different ethnicities look very different, but skin. But if you look at the direct and global, the direct is almost always gray. And all the pigment is in the blue. 
So you protect people of different ethnicities. I hope I have the example. Uh, the, the direct components almost the same. Are these normalized at all? They may be normalized, yeah. Uh, but the, the global component is what actually gives the real color. Okay. So there's no color. The direct reflection is no color. So if an alien comes in and can see only indirect uh, illumination, uh, that's how to look. You should also look on Flickr for infrared photographs. Yeah. They show people are really wrinkly. Exactly, yeah. And we'll see some thermal uh, IR and that. that's also Anyway, I'll, I'll go through it quickly. Um, yeah, what happens if you do this with IR? I mean, it's the same effect. Yes. I mean, sometimes, like, at some wavelengths, there's more interreflections than others. Uh, so you can imagine some surfaces are actually darker in a particular wavelength. So the, the, the situation I explained where you have a person in a white room versus a black room, their appearance looks very different, right? Because there's direct plus global in the white room but not in the dark room. So at a particular wavelength, the room may be black and you'll see just direct. All right, so let's take a break and then we'll come back and talk about optics and, and light force.